0: Welcome to ACE Podcasts! Thanks for tuning in as we elevate clinical endocrinology by taking deep dives into trends and topics that can help us improve our patient care and global health. Find the latest episodes on aace.com slash podcasts. And now let's meet the endocrine experts who will be talking with us today.
1: Welcome to a new episode of the ACE Podcast. I'm Armand Krikorian and I'll be your moderator. Today, I'm the Vice Chair of Medicine and uh, Residency Program Director at Advocate Christ in Chicago, Illinois. And it's my distinct pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Setu Reddy today. Dr. Reddy is the Professor and Chair of Medicine at Central Michigan University and the Vice President of ACE. Dr. Reddy, welcome.
0: Nice being here, Armand. Nice to be here.
1: Thank you, thank you. And our topic for discussion today is early insulin therapy or early insulinization. So let's start with the basics. How do we define it? What is early insulin therapy?
0: Well, I think it's all beauties in the eye of the beholder. So if the patient feels that they could have held off on insulin therapy for another year or two or longer, and we as a physician are proposing insulin therapy, they would consider it early therapy. For us as physicians and endocrinologists, you know, most of us would say our patients with type 2 diabetes certainly would try one, two, triple oral agent therapy. And then the question of insulin therapy definitely comes into view. If we think about starting insulin therapy when somebody has just been on uh, one oral agent, then that would be certainly considered early by most of our colleagues. So I think it's relative to uh, where either the patient feels they are or where the doctor feels that they're in the natural history as probably demonstrated by ACE guidelines and guidelines from ADA and other national organizations.
1: I see. Thank you for that. And since you mentioned guidelines, we know that ACE have uh, an algorithm for initiation of diabetes therapy. And you have extensive experience as a clinical endocrinologist also uh, in treating patients. So when do you consider early insulinization? Yeah, so that's the
0: magic question. So many referrals we get from primary care providers and physicians is when do you start insulin therapy? In one study, it was demonstrated that we as physicians get used to seeing high blood sugars from patients. So in diabetes, let's say a blood sugar of 126 or higher is used as a diagnostic criteria for saying somebody has diabetes. But two years later, we will not intensify the therapy unless the sugar is over 180. And then four years go by, again, we get used to those high blood sugars and we tolerate higher and higher blood sugars. Meanwhile, the bar for diagnosis is back at 126. So my very short recommendation to physicians and uh, anyone is that if uh, somebody is not achieving the target hemoglobin A1c while on any treatment, then they should consider insulin therapy. In other words, if maximally tolerated acceptable treatment, if they're not achieving target, then that's the usual state. One doesn't say that, oh, let's wait till the A1c gets to 10% before we start insulin therapy. So I think that's one factor. In terms of the target, AACE would recommend that in an otherwise typical type 2 person with type 2 diabetes, probably 6.5% the target. The ADA would say 7% with the caveat that whatever can be safely achieved. So we definitely do not want to get A1C of 6.5% if the patient is having side effects from the medications or significant episodes of hypoglycemia. So whatever the target we try to achieve, it's definitely uh, another clause would be safety factor. So that makes it very simple. So the thing we've learned over the years, I think since the UK PDS study, was that uh, most people with type two diabetes will eventually require insulin. And actually that was an important Eureka moment for me because before that, I used to you know, give sermons to patients saying, you didn't follow what I said, you ate that extra cheesecake, you didn't exercise, so our sugars are going up, so I'm gonna to have to put you on insulin. So a lot of times our patients saw it as a, as a punishment. But the, what the UK PDS study showed was that the natural history of type two diabetes is that even when folks are trying to do the right thing, the sugars continue to rise you know, every six months or every year, higher and higher. So in one sense, it really is part of the condition itself that the sugars will continue to rise. And we now know that it's because of the continued beta cell failure. And at that point, of course, you need to replace the beta cells with insulin therapy. So that has helped uh, tremendously in even counseling patients. So I gave up the holier-than-thou or angry attitude, I become more understanding. And uh, in fact, I advise every new type two patient that I see that eventually they will require insulin. So I give them a, a heads up that uh, eventually you know, they'll need insulin. Yeah, so when do you start that insulin therapy? If a patient hasn't achieved the target, then you have to go if, if you've exceeded all the other options, basically.
1: Thank you. Thank you for that. And uh, I I love the clinical pearl of setting the expectation at diagnosis so that there is no guilt and there is no failure feelings involved. I think that's a great pearl.
0: Yeah, because I think I used to have patients that come and their blood pressure would go up when they come to see me because they knew I would, you know, give a a sermon and preach to them about why they aren't doing as well. And so I think uh, it made me a better physician, I think.
1: Uh, you're absolutely right. It made us all better physicians that the natural progression of the disease is, is definitely an unforgiving uh, one. So um, I'm looking at the ACE algorithm mm-hmm. that we have, and you know it has this very nice stepwise increase from monotherapy to dual therapy to triple therapy. And it also has this interesting uh, branching based on the entry A1C. So uh, if we take a hypothetical scenario where someone is presenting with a hemoglobin A1c above nine and symptoms, you would start them on insulin from the get-go?
0: Might start. So entry could be when they actually initially develop diabetes. So those folks that we call it naive type two diabetes. On the other hand, you know, somebody has been under the care of a family physician or a nurse practitioner for several years with diabetes. And now they're seeing me in the office So four or five years after being diagnosed with diabetes, now they come in with A1C of 9.5%. I treat them a little differently, more aggressively than those that have naive, newly diagnosed type 2 diabetes. So as you see, the ACE algorithm actually has two options. what they're saying is that A1C is high, more than 9.5, and they have symptoms, polydipsia, polyuria, weight loss, et cetera, then they go to insulin therapy And if they don't have symptoms, then consider perhaps instead of the traditional stepwise therapy, one drug, see how it works, and then maybe add two second drug, and so on. ACE would say, start with two medications right at the start. And uh, symptoms, I think, is an interesting clue. So this is another clue that I often share with uh, our residents and students. When somebody with type 2 diabetes comes to your office, and they're losing weight, but their sugars are not improving. That's a sure sign that beta cells are failing. Their C-peptide level is probably also waning, and they probably need insulin therapy. But if they're losing weight, and their sugars are improving, well, that's great. That's, we actually want that. So, you know, some of our patients, sometimes they think they're losing weight, and they're really happy but uh, they come in and their A1C is actually rising. And I tell them, you know, it's unfortunate, but it really means that your pancreas is not, uh, is failing basically. So insulin therapy could be started, but you know, they're, interestingly, Armand, there've been studies done where in those naive, newly diagnosed people with diabetes, uh, starting dual therapy. So maybe metformin, and maybe another agent could be any of the DPP4 inhibitor, sglt 2 inhibitor, TZD, uh, starting dual therapy, you probably have about a 50% chance of getting that person to target. And this is in somebody with uh, naive, you know, newly diagnosed diabetes. So, you know, if we were to go to Las Vegas and play the slot machines and somebody said, uh, you have a 50% chance of getting the jackpot, I would take that risk. And we're not abandoning the patient. So people with newly diagnosed diabetes with an A1C of 9.5%, certainly, and if they're reluctant to start insulin therapy, you could start dual therapy right off the bat, the beginning, and follow their sugars. And maybe they have a 50% chance of getting to target.
1: Thank you. And and I agree, 50% chance is a pretty good odd. I'll take it also. So, now on that line, so I'm getting the theme of aggressive therapy. And you mentioned before, you talked about clinical inertia and how we as providers sometimes are guilty of clinical inertia. What are other barriers you're seeing to early incident therapy from the provider's perspective?
0: I think from providers, it's a complexity. Of the regimens. You know, when I finished my residency training in internal medicine, we had NPH insulin and regular insulin and the violent syringe. And we had Ultralante, I think, at the time as well. So, three choices. Now, of course, we've gone to human insulin equivalents, but then designer insulins with various, uh, you know, artificial mutations to change the how insulin gets crystallized, how insulin is absorbed and so on. And that has led to a plethora of types of insulin, different half-lives, different duration of action. And it is more complicated, I think, for a primary care physician. I mean, generally speaking, I would urge most primary care physicians to select one long-acting, one fast-acting that they're comfortable with, they know really well, and to use those in particular. We as endocrinologists, of course, would probably want experience with all of the different insulins, because we want to be able to switch and adapt to how patients respond. Also, how patients may, their own patient uh, formulary plans might also change. So, I think it's the complexity nowadays, if uh, medications need prior authorization, people are uh, reluctant to because it takes a lot of office work and personnel time to do it. So, I've seen times where patients are referred to endocrinologists because of all the bureaucracy and non-medical work related to getting the patient into the right scenario. So maybe a sense of failure. Physicians may feel like, I could have done better. I don't know why this isn't uh, working. Then I'm sure the next question would be, you know, what are the barriers from the patient? And some people and some people actually call it insulin resistance, right? But not where the body is resistant mm-hmm. to uh, insulin. And uh, they may have acanthosis, nigricans, and polycystic ovary syndrome, and, and so on but where patients are psychologically resistant to insulin. For them, certainly, it's a feeling amongst our patients that they don't have diabetes until they're put on insulin. So as long as they're on oral agents, what they'll tell their fa- you know, friends and family is, oh, I have a touch of diabetes, and I really don't have real diabetes yet. So uh, the insulin treatment is kind of a finality. And it's interesting, you know, they'll accept our GLP-1 analog injections because when we tell them it's not insulin, they're okay with it. But you say the word insulin, they are afraid that this is the final. You know, many of our older patients have had uh, uncles or parents with diabetes. And what they remember is that, uh, oh, yeah, the doctor started insulin when my father went in for uh, kidney dialysis or they had a foot amputation. That's when they started insulin. So it's a correlation. So what they correlate is insulin start, food amputation. So when we start insulin, they think something bad is going to happen very soon. Obviously, complexity of the regimen for our patients as well. The usual, violent syringe. Thankfully, I think the insulin pen has been a great advance. It's led to more accuracy of uh, the dosing, less confusion, especially also accuracy when in terms of mixing. A long-acting and uh, fast-acting insulins together in the same syringe. With a pen, you don't have to do that. And in Europe, interestingly, you know, pen utilization is probably 80% type 2 diabetes, whereas in the U.S. it's been probably around 25-30%. It's climbing year every year, but it's not the same as in Europe. Now, what I find nice about the pens is I can teach a patient how to give insulin in about five minutes, whereas with the insulin syringe i'm sure you remember we used to admit a patient to the hospital for four or five days the diabetic nurse so called teaching nurse would come with an orange and a syringe and would show how to inject the orange and they would progress it slowly you know day by day finally on the fifth day they'd inject their abdomen and they'd be discharged now you know i take out the pen i show how you can screw on the needle and uh, test it with like two or three units of insulin. And while I'm talking, I can poke them in the abdomen, inject the insulin, take out the pen. They don't even realize that they received an injection. So it's a great way to get the patients to feel comfortable about uh, insulin start. but definitely fair of needles, et cetera. It's interestingly, the pen needles are sharper and shorter than typical traditional syringes and so on. So the sharper the needle, it, it doesn't make common sense, but the sharper the needle, the less pain. Normally we think, you know, the sharper the knife, the deeper the cut. <laughs> so we think bad things. But actually the sharper the needle, the less pain. And so we can demonstrate right there and then for the patient. Cost could be another. I mean, uh, people often are concerned about their co-pays and so on. And as you know, Armand, these days, we often keep people on oral agents, plus add the insulin on top of it. So it adds an additional cost as well. So lots of barriers from physician side as well as patient.
1: Thank you. And yes, you touched on a lot of the stigma associated with it from both the clinicians and the patients. And thank you for sharing those pearls about how to alleviate some of the fears and help patients accept the therapy. So if a patient is started, I think the most common questions I get asked is, will I be on insulin forever? Is this the end for me? What is your typical answer? Will they come off insulin when A1Cs go to target? Do you de-escalate therapy?
0: For this kind of question, we get this fairly often. I try to be optimistic. And even though the chances are probably 90% or higher that they will not get off insulin, I always say that this doesn't have to be a permanent treatment. So for many of our patients, I think if they do find religion and suddenly start on a healthy diet, lose 15, 20 pounds, we always ask for about at least 5% of their initial body weight, that things may improve. The patient is requiring a rule of thumb, generally in the old days was somebody is requiring less than 30 units of insulin to control their diabetes chances are that they could come off insulin if they were able to get back onto a healthy diet, exercise, and weight loss, of course. So the total amount of insulin might be a factor. The other nice, interesting observation was that when the TZDs first came out, obviously, we had people on metformin and maybe a sulfonylurea. They failed, and they went to insulin. So in that time frame, people were put on insulin therapy because that was the only other option. When then TZDs came out, people said, oh, TZDs might be, make your insulin more sensitive. And if the patient was making their own, you know, some, their own insulin, TZDs were started. And lo and behold, about 20% of patients were able to get off insulin because they had never been exposed to TZD before. And as you know, Armand, I think the holy grail for type 2 diabetes is if an oral medication can rejuvenate the beta cells, then obviously there is a potential reversal. And that's what I tell patients. I said, you know, we have to go with insulin because this is what's happening with your diabetes. But in the next four years or five years, if a super pill or a magical medication gets approved by the FDA where it will resurrect your beta cells and your pancreas, we might be able to get you off uh, insulin. I think I prefer to be optimistic because if I t- start the insulin and tell them that this is just uh, gonna be lifelong, I think they'll probably feel down and will not be very enthused. I also give them encouragement in terms of their lifestyle changes. That, hey, if you do this, it gives them motivation to uh, maybe get off insulin Like, you know, we have some patients who, when their daughter's wedding is coming up or something is coming up in the summer, you know, they'll follow a diet and get into a healthy lifestyle. So they need some motivation to uh, get back on the lifestyle track.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, one of the stigma uh, that is often the elephant in the room is hypoglycemia. Insulin is a high-risk medication, and both clinicians like us and patients are are afraid of hypoglycemia and its potential complications. What is your advice or what is your take on that?
0: My advice is, of course, to very carefully uh, educate the patients about uh, low blood sugars. And I think I have a couple of minutes to give you an example. So many years ago, when I was younger, I took the sulfonylurea just to see what would happen. So I took it, you know, 7 o'clock in the morning, went to the clinic, started seeing my patients and around 9 30 or so in the morning I'd be sitting in my office and suddenly I felt very nervous. I felt, uh, I thought the roof was actually going to come crashing. When my secretary would talk to me, I would, I wasn't rude to her, but I was anxious saying, please finish up what you're saying to me kind of thing, you know, uh, and I want to keep working or whatever. And so 10, 15 minutes went by. Then I realized (laughs) Oh, this is hypoglycemia because my hands were a little trembling as I was typing on the keyboard. So I went out to the clinic, you know, got the grape juice and drank and I felt fine. But it struck me that we as endocrinologists often make light of low blood sugars. We tell the patients, oh, you get a little sweaty, a little hungry, a little shaky. If you do, then, you know, have a little uh, half a glass of orange juice with the sugar or half a glass of milk. Uh, a little sugar and you'll be fine and our patients are not medical doctors not medically qualified they don't know all the biology behind hypoglycemia and I can imagine our patients actually panicking when they get that uh, low blood sugar so definitely I agree hypoglycemia is a major barrier and if we don't give them a heads up what could happen and take precautions it makes it very difficult actually. Hypoglycemia is another barrier to getting to good control because now they come in they're low blood sugar, they're eating more or they're taking less insulin. I look at their A1C, it's high in the clinic. Then I say, well, you know, we're gonna have to go up on your insulin and they take the prescription or we, you know, e-scribe the prescription to the pharmacy I can almost guarantee you, when they go home, they're not going to take more more insulin. So I think hypoglycemia, we make light of it, but uh, very important to uh, educate our patients about hypoglycemia. And interestingly, when we start insulin, I don't know whether you're going to ask this or not, but uh, often we start with basal or bedtime, basal insulin, and not the fast acting for meals. So the good news is when you do start bedtime, I think the risk of hypoglycemia is relatively lower. And then they may get it when they're waking up in the morning. And for some reason, I think they feel a little more safe, actually, as opposed to taking insulin during the day when they're at work or
1: they're driving a car or whatever. So that's my observation. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, that's a perfect segue for the next question. Is your favorite approach starting patients on a basal insulin first plus oral hypoglycemics and then transitioning to a full basal bolus regimen?
0: I think ideally, if we can, and the two reasons, one is that it's logical. And the second reason is that I like doing most things in a uniform way. So I tell almost all my patients the same. I answer the questions the similar way, similar advice, because I don't want to be woken up in the middle of the night and trying to remember, oh, what answer did I give that patient? And what answer did I give this patient? And then same thing in terms of the approach. So... The logic for me is that, uh, okay, Mr. Smith, uh, you know your sugars are high throughout the day, and uh, let's try and attack the morning sugar. And there's been studies that have shown that we can bring down your morning sugar when you start the day and you do all the right things with your diet and exercise, we might be able to control the sugars better the rest of the day. So let's just focus on getting your morning sugar to a good range. So let's start with a small dose of this basal insulin at bedtime. Check your morning sugar. And you know every four or five days, you can raise your insulin dosage at bedtime until the morning sugar gets to about 120 or so. And then we'll see how your sugars are doing after breakfast, lunchtime, before dinner, etc. cetera. And then uh, we'll see whether that morning sugar, which is good now, whether it can keep you, the basal insulin can keep you steady throughout the day. If your morning sugar is great, but your sugar at lunchtime is higher, and then maybe by dinner it's going up to 200 again, then what it's telling me is that maybe the basal insulin is working, but it's not working long enough. So I can logically explain to the patient that, hey, we need more help. And uh, it might be uh, maybe a second dose of basal in the morning, like a a booster shot, or it may be, in fact, thinking about prandial insulin for, uh, you know, mealtime coverage. Typically, I think when we get to prandial insulin, we probably start backing off on insulin secretagog type of oral agents, sulfonylureas or uh, DP 4 inhibitors. We probably keep metformin on board, uh, again, because it's generic and cheap and may still be helping uh, overall control. Uh, obviously the SGLT2 inhibitors are a new player in that uh, role as well. So I like the basal bolus uh, regimen. I have very few patients on pre-mixed insulin uh, currently, but pre-mixed insulin may be an option for stable people with type two diabetes, where the sugars are you know, stable, their eating habits are relatively stable, et cetera. But I also think cost comes into as a factor, unfortunately. So, you know, a lot of the basal bolus insulins are the newer designer insulins and they tend to have higher co-pays, et cetera. Whereas the NPH and regular insulins are available, you know, generically for, I believe, or sometimes $24 a, a 10,000 units vial.
1: Absolutely. And there are so many factors that go into play to individualize the regimen for our patients. And as you mentioned, This approach actually has quite a bit of evidence behind it. And if my recollection is correct, the control of the morning blood glucose or the fasting glucose has a significant impact on the uh, hemoglobin A1c. So the A1c,
0: if you target the fasting blood sugar, you can get the A1c from 10%, 12%, uh, down to about 8.5%, maybe a little bit lower. But to go from an A1c of 8.5% to get to 7%, it takes a lot of work. You probably will need prandial insulin. There studies have been conducted in France by Monnier showing that the degree of contribution of fasting versus postprandial blood sugars to the A1C. Uh, the A1C obviously is an integrated composite indicator of overall glucose control. The good news for that is that you don't have to do a lot of work to get the A1C down to about 8%. If we just target the fasting blood sugar, you can uh, do that. Although, Armand, I think one warning to our primary care physicians, if you try to control all of the blood sugars throughout the day with just a basal insulin, there may be a danger of hypoglycemia You know, when they skip a meal or they're over doing more exercise. So what I tell people, if you're trying to control all the blood sugars with a basal insulin, it really is like trying to do embroidery with boxing gloves on you're not going to do a good job, right? So it's too difficult, I think, too coarse a tool.
1: Thank you for that. And I like the analogy. That's a good one. Thank you for that. So I think we've covered a lot of various aspects of early insulin therapy. And any last words of advice from your end?
0: I think when we're seeing our patients, certainly uh, framing where insulin therapy fits in, giving them an advance notice that eventually they will need insulin. If I haven't done it before, certainly when they're on that triple therapy or they're on two oral agents and a GLP-1 analog, I already tell them that around the corner is insulin therapy waiting for you. So they don't feel that it's a sense of failure. And the insulins themselves, I think it's important for us to know how they work. And the good news about the newer insulins about the designer insulins is that they are much more predictable than the older insulins from a generation ago. And we as physicians, I think, we have the freedom to use those tools if we know exactly when they're peaking, how long they're lasting, we can customize the treatment to our patients. We're not bound by strict rules that you can only use that insulin once a day, or you can only use this insulin only before meals. So depending on the patient's lifestyle scenario, you know, gastroparesis, lots of other issues, we can adjust the insulin. The more we know about the insulin, we can customize it to our patient's needs.
1: Thank you. And uh, that's a great call for action and with the very exciting era that we're living in with so many options available to us. Well,
0: thank you for asking interesting questions. And uh, hopefully the answers weren't too long
1: or boring. No, they were perfect. Thank you so much, Dr. Reddy. And thank you again for an amazing episode of the ACE podcast. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to another great ACE podcast. Join us for another episode at aace.com slash podcasts and help us in our mission to elevate clinical endocrinology. Together, we are ACE.